Rachel, have you started the stream?
for your visit. I just want to let you know we haven't forgotten. But we're moving stuff out of there so you can get in there with lots of access.
Good morning. Good to see you all this morning on this delightfully cool Sunday morning. After all that heat, that feels so good. Pulled the blanket up over this morning. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Exodus 32, 31 and 32. Thank you again to the Lapeer County EMS for our defibrillator. Classes starting soon. Dr. Ed's address there. Uh, again, if you uh, aren't, have not been back to using the um, offering box, please do so. Andrea's number. Days of Praise uh, are here, and also the brand new, as of yesterday, Acts and Facts with a crazy-looking fish on there. So interesting, I'm sure. Take advantage of those. All right, anything else? Scripture for meditation this morning is in Exodus 32. Read 17 through 35, 138 in the Pew Bible.
Let's stand and ask the Lord to bless our service today. <clears throat> Dale, can you lead us today? Take your Trinity hymnals this morning and turn to 396. 396 in the Trinity.
a favorite hymn this morning? Anyone? Mercy. First hand. It is well. That should be in the brown. Am I right? Is it 492? 392? 492. <laughs> we'll get there eventually. 493 in the brown. Sorry. It's Uncle Jared's favorite hymn. Why this hymn this morning? Just because... All right. Now I just have to find it. Four, nine, three.
Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Exodus 20. We'll be reading 1 through 21. That's 118. your red hymnals again and turn to 391, 391 in the red.
Thank you. You may be seated. Our scripture text this morning is Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus, not a book we often go to. Last Sunday we studied God's command that there is to be no imaging of him in our worship. That means no idols, no statues, no icons, no pictures, no sculptures, no paintings. Why? Well, because invariably men who fashion such replicas produce an image of God that's too human and totally devoid of his deity. We make God over into what we want him to be. Now, I ask the question, how does this uh, apply to religious art? I don't know if you've done this, but uh, the Toledo uh, Museum of Art has some beautiful, beautiful depictions of the nativity, the miracle-working power of Jesus, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension. And I'm not talking about a little picture. I'm not even talking about a picture that would fit on, let's say, that blank spot on our wall, but they go from the floor to the ceiling in what you might consider a cathedral-type building. They're huge. You know, they're 20 feet tall by maybe 20 feet wide and so forth. Huge paintings. So uh, Don and I enjoyed that years ago, and we were down visiting the Tuckers, on the way home, we said, hey, let's stop at the Toledo Museum and take a look at the art, and we did. It's wonderful. We appreciate such as the talents of men that paint on canvas and so on, not with any notion or of rendering Jesus actually how he looked. No one knows that. Nor even the artist's depiction as how they envision the events, for example, that they were painting. There was no worship of God, is what I'm saying, by looking at the paintings. If anything, uh, there was an appreciation for the skills of the artists. We knew it was only their concept of Jesus and what had happened, and so we left to go with that. You can appreciate religious art and not think, well, you're seeing the actual what happened in New Testament days. A lot of it is accurate, though. They're picking their procedures from the scriptures and giving it a rendition with ink and paint. The imaging of God, which all of us tend to be guilty, is what God told Ezekiel about Israel, who had 
Ezekiel words it this way, idols of the heart. Idols of the heart. That is, things, people, concepts, which they worshipped above God and devoted their time and energy and money to obtain or to honor. The problem with all idols or images is that they are the inventions of men. Secondly, they're impotent. They're unable to do any harm and they're unable to do any good for the worshiper. Oh, and they could be demonic because it could be that the devil is robbing God of his rightful worship by substituting religious icons. And there are religions that are all wrapped up in religious icons, religion images. And they're worshiping the images rather than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I'm not picking on any particular religion, but there are many of them. So today I want to ask the question, may we add to worship what we want to add to it? And it addresses this whole thing. So as we come, let's ask the Lord for his blessing to us. Lord, we thank you for your word that you address everything. And we're talking about worship these last few Sundays. And so we're asking what, what's available in worship that would please you and what is not that which would please you. We're seeing both. We ask, Lord, that you would help us because in our worship, when we come together, this little country church, we want to be people who worship you in faith and truth and honor. And we want to avoid the entrapments of the evil one who would like us to very much to be religious but lost. And there are many churches in our country that are religious but lost. They're all into lesser things than the power of Jesus Christ as Savior and the sovereign of the universe. So keep us from error. Help us to see the truth. And not only to see it, but to apply it by the Holy Spirit to our lives so that we might be an example to the watching world of what it means to be a follower of the God of heaven. We praise thee for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm asking the question this morning, may we add to worship what we want? Aaron consecrated himself, his sons, and the people, Leviticus 9. This involved a sin offering, a burnt offering, a fellowship offering, together with a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. Chapter 9 of our text, verse 3 and following. And the purpose of these offerings is found in chapter 9, verse 7. Moses said to Aaron, Come to the altar and sacrifice your sin offering, your burnt offering, and make atonement for yourself and for the people. The offerings are to make atonement for. Repeatedly throughout the text, we have reference to Aaron's sons presenting the blood of these offerings to Aaron, their father. Verse 9, verse 12, verse 18. They were bloody uh, sacrifices, a life for a life. Your principle is explained by the writer of Hebrews, 
where he says, The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Someone has to pay for your sin and my sin. In the Old Testament, the animal symbolized that one who was coming, who would be the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Hebrews 9, verse 22. Such atoning sacrifices had to begin with Aaron and his sons because they were sinners, just like the congregation of Israel. Let me read it for you from Hebrews 5. Every high priest is selected from among men and appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He's able, the priest, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. And this is why he offers sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. No one can take this honor upon himself. He must be called by God just as Aaron was. Hebrews 5, first four verses. This is precisely the procedure employed in Leviticus 9 on day 1 of the first, very first atoning sacrifice. Verse 22 says, <coughs> Then Aaron lifted his hands towards the people, and blessed them, and having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, the fellowship offering, he stepped down. And then Aaron then, along with Moses, I'm reading in the context, entered the tent of meeting, the worship center, and we read, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord, consumed the burnt offering, and the fat portions on the altar and when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy, and they fell face down. Verse 23 and 24, Leviticus 9. Boy, what a sight that must have been. Thousands of people, boom, face down in honor and in obedience to God. It was also a time of great joy, the Shekinah glory was the best indicator that God was with them and well pleased with their worship. Years later, when Solomon's temple was completed and the tabernacle was being laid to rest, we again read, when Solomon finished praying, fire came from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. 2 Chronicles 7, verse 1 and 2. God is pleased. He is eager to reveal himself whenever we worship him in spirit and in truth. John 4, verse 23. Think about this. If the blood of sacrificed animals can obtain entrance into God's favor and promote the display of his glory, what must it be like to understand what the writer of Hebrews relates about Jesus' atoning sacrifice of himself when he writes, Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, unlike the other high priests, 
He does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, that is, sinners. But the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Hebrews 7 Verse 26 and following. What a contrast. You got the earthly priests. They're weak. They have to offer sacrifice after sacrifice. It's year in, year out. Week in, week out. Month in, month out. Perpetual. Perpetual is the idea. My, the blood that must have flowed from the altar. Think about it. And then... The writer of Hebrews contrasts that to one perfect, sinless sacrifice. Not of an animal. Not of some kind of vegetation. But of the Lamb of God, who is Jesus Christ. Wow. It's obvious that Jesus is a superior priest with a superior sacrifice. Being without personal sin, the sin of the people, and yet their sin, our sin, is so great, so extensive, that nothing will appease God except Jesus himself, the Lamb of God. Only he can present the perfect, the final sacrifice, which is the what the book of Hebrews is all about. The writer of Hebrews words it this way. The point of what we are saying is this. We do not have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Yes, we do. For he serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord not by men. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one, referring to Jesus, also to have something to offer. Now notice this contrast. He's still talking about Jesus. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest. Whoa, wait a minute here. Mr. Writer of Hebrews, what are you saying? If he were on earth, he would not be a priest. He's referring to Jesus. For there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that's a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old one. And he is, it is founded upon better promises. Hebrews 8, the first six verses. What a contrast. 
We had earthly priests. They served according to the law. They offered their sacrifices according to the law, which were animal sacrifices. And then along comes Jesus. Different kind of sacrifice. The symbolism of the lamb, yes, but the lamb of God that takes away once and for all the sin of his people. In the case of Aaron and his service on this first consecration of himself and his sons and the people, we are told this is what the Lord has commanded you to do so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Leviticus 9 verse 4. Again verse 7. Sacrifices and offerings that is for the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded Everything occurring on that day of worship in the wilderness was done strictly by the book. God's book. And the Lord demonstrated his acceptance by appearing in all of his glory on that day. When we worship God in God's way, his glory is upon us. <clears throat> his blessing is upon us. His approval is upon us. Moses says in Exodus 23, Worship the Lord your God, and his blessing will be on your food and your water. I will take away sicknesses from among you. None of you will miscarry or be barren in the land. I will give you a full lifespan. <clears throat> I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation that you encounter. I will make all of your enemies turn their backs and run. Exodus 23, verse 25 and following. The psalmist put it this way, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud <clears throat> to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his. He made it. His hands form the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Psalm 95, the first six verses. We realize that we're coming before our maker when we worship God. The one who made us. And all things. Our world. How horrendous then is Nadab and Abihu's great sin of presumptuous worship. Aaron had four sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Four. Exodus 6, verse 23, also verse 6. All of them to a man was in, were in the priesthood. All of them were responsible to lead the people in the worship of God. And if you're going to be a leader, you have to walk out in the open for all to see and for all to follow what you do. We lead by example as well as by principle. And as noted, all of the sacrifices of Aaron and his sons in chapter 9, we're by the book. They were, as God commanded, step by step. 
But upon coming to chapter 10, we read that Nadab and Abihu took it upon themselves to offer, and I'm reading scripture now, unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. Hmm. These are the priests. These are Aaron's sons. Their task is to lead the people in worship of God. But they take it upon themselves to offer unauthorized fire, which the Lord did not command them to do. Where then were they to get the fire for their censers? Aaron shall bring the bull for his own offering to make an atonement for himself and his household, and he's to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He's time reading scripture. He is to take an, a censer full of burnt coals from that altar before the Lord, two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense, take them behind the curtain. He's to put the incense on the fire before the Lord. And the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the testimony. That's the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant, so that he will not die. Leviticus 16, verse 11 and following. There was a way to approach God, even for the priests. After God judged Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, you remember that incident? where the earth opened and swallowed them because of their rebellion. The people protested against Moses and Aaron that very day, the scripture says, and God sent a death plague upon them. They blamed Moses and Aaron. And God sent a plague of death that began to annihilate the Israelites. So what happened? Moses said to Aaron, take your censer, put some incense on it, along with fire from the altar. Hurry, hurry to the assembly and make atonement for them, for the people. Wrath has come out from the Lord and the plague has already started. So Aaron did as Moses said. He ran into the midst of the assembly the plague had already started among the dire, um, among the people. But Aaron offered the incense and he made atonement for them. And he stood between the living and the dead. That's what a priest ought to do. And the plague stopped. But 14,700, I'm reading scripture. But 14,700 people died from the plague. In addition to those who had died because of Korah. Then Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting, for the plague stopped. Number 16, verse 46 and following. The fire was to originate from the same altar where atonement sacrifices were made for the sins of the people. It was consecrated fire. It was sanctified fire, so to speak. We're not told the source of the fire used by Nadab and Abihu, 
only that it was unauthorized fire, verse 1. The Greek word here is zor, Z-O-O-R. And it means to be loathsome, to be strange in the sense of alien, a stranger. It's actually used of prostitutes. None of these adjectives are appropriate for a fire coal that's used in the worship of God. But that's where Nadab and Abihu went and got their fire. Strange fire. They did their own thing. What we learn in all this is that Aaron, and by extension his sons, knew what God required in any burning of incense before him. No wonder then that God was highly offended at the presumption of these priests who certainly knew better yet thought the worship of God was of so little consequence that they could approach him in a loathsome display of arrogance without suffering any dire consequences. We'll just do our own thing. They presumed to worship God in their way, following the desires of their own heart. Does any of this sound familiar? It's like many people in our day. People think worship is about them. How they feel. What makes them happy. What pleases them. It is almost as though they think God has not prescribed a particular protocol in approaching him. They think all that's necessary is that a person be sincere in what he or she does. You know, I don't doubt it in the least that Nadab and Abihu were sincere. They believed that as priests, not only was it their duty to lead the people in worship, but they entered into the role with confidence, maybe too much self-confidence, that their actions would be approved. But they were wrong. Sincerity doesn't make you right. You can be dead wrong and be sincere. They paid for their presumption with their lives. We read fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord, verse 2. We need not speculate as to why. Look at verse 3. Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. And we read, Aaron remained silent. Good move, Aaron. What else could he do? From this we know that the burning of incense by Aaron's sons using unauthorized fire was indeed contrary to God's command, verse 1. So no matter how sincere a worshiper may be, he or she cannot add to God's word and believe that sincerity of purpose 
placates any and all infractions of God's ordinances. These priests thought they were worshiping God when in fact they dishonored him before the people and profaned what was holy. Beware of presumption with God. Do not think that anything you offer him will be acceptable simply because you are sincere. Do not assume that anything goes when it comes to worship or that God should be happy to have his people worship him regardless of the procedures they employ. God is holy. And we must keep that in the forefront of our worship. He's not pleased with the inventions of men. It's what disturbs me is when I see some of the worship services on TV. I mean, brethren, the shenanigans that go on there in the name of God. And I'm not questioning those people's sincerity. I, I, I wouldn't do that. But I am wondering where they came up with the idea that God is pleased with all of that. Well, we just thought, well, did you think it through biblically? Secondly, I want you to think about what theologians have called the regulative principle in worship. This is a little theological, but hang in there. Define. The regular principle of worship in Christian theology teaches that the public worship of God should include those and only those elements that are instituted, commanded, or appointed by command or example in the Bible. In other words... It is the belief that God institutes in Scripture whatever He requires for worship in the church and everything else should be avoided. We don't have to guess. And we don't have to invent. It's in the book what pleases God in worship. And then they quote from Calvin, which in this case is very helpful. Here's what they write. Moreover, the rule which distinguishes between pure and devalued worship is of universal application in order that we may not adopt any device which seems fit to ourselves. Boy, that's a good statement. But rather look to the injunctions of him who alone is entitled to prescribe. We say to God, in other words, well, God, what, what do you want when it comes to worshiping? Not what do we want, what do you want? They go on. Therefore, if we would have him to approve our worship, this rule, 
which he everywhere enforces with the utmost strictness, must be carefully observed. For there is a twofold reason why the Lord, in condemning and prohibiting all fictitious worship, requires us to give obedience only to his own voice. What are the two things that God is looking for in worship? They go on. First, it tends greatly to establish his authority that we do not follow our own pleasures. Boy, that's a good statement. We start with the idea, God, what do you want? What do you consider to be worshipful? We are to depend entirely on, I'm still reading their notes, his sovereignty. Wow, I like that. That's number one. And secondly, such is our folly, our folly, that when we are left at liberty, all we are able to do is to go astray. Oh boy, are they putting their finger on the problem. Let's do what God has commanded us to do in worshiping him and not invent things on our own because when we do that, oh, what's going to happen? We're going to go astray. They go on, and then when once we have turned aside from the right path, there's no end to our wanderings until we get buried under a multitude of superstitions. Think of the religions of the world and the things they've invented that they think God approves. They go on to say, Justly therefore does the Lord, in order to assert his full right of dominion strictly enjoin what he wishes us to do and at once reject all human devices which are at variance with his command. Justly too does he in express terms define our limits that we may not by fabricating perverse modes of worship provoke his anger against us. So wrote John Calvin. He had it right. Go by the book. Don't be inventive. And you're on safe ground. Nadab and Abihu clearly violated this principle, though Calvin wasn't even born yet. In Moses' words, they offered unauthorized fire. That is, not prescribed by God. And then negatively, verse 1, contrary to God's command. Unauthorized, contrary to. Two strikes, you're out. So I ask the question, do we expect God's word to spell out every detail of our worship? Well, let me give you, God gives us two qualifiers for worship. And we, work, we can work within those perimeters. 
Here it is, verse 3. Among those who approach me, I will show myself what? Holy. First qualifier. Second qualifier, also in verse 3. In the sight of all the people, all the people, now we're talking a corporate element here. People are watching our worship. In the sight of all our peop- uh, all the people, I will be honored. Holy, honored. It's easy to remember the two H's. What constitutes holy worship? Well, we could go to the basic understanding of holy. The word, both in Hebrew and Greek, Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament, means to set apart, to consecrate, to designate as sacred, to hallow. It's the opposite of being common, profane, secular, carnal. We have in our hymnal an accurate hymn entitled Holy, 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 written by Reginald Eber in 1823. And the third verse reads this way, Holy, 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 Though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, only thou art holy, and there is none beside thee. It cannot escape us that the scriptures behind these lyrics is Isaiah chapter 6. Wherein the prophet envisioned God sitting on his throne, surrounded by the seraphim, the fiery ones, and one cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah 6, verse 3. And it is in that same vision that Isaiah sees himself. How does he see himself? He sees himself as undone. Let me read it for you. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. Literally there, Hebrews says, I'm cut off. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah 6, verse 5. He thinks, boy, I am in trouble. I'm just a sinner. And I have just seen God. He's going to kill me. I deserve to be killed. We observe that it is the utter contrast of Isaiah seeing himself as a man of sinful speech compared to the thrice holy God enthroned amidst the flaming seraphs which causes him to conclude, I am ruined. I'm ruined. He got a glimpse of God. What I'm saying is here, there is no bebopping, there is no jazz jangling, sing song as he worships God in all of his holiness. 
Rather, there is fear, there is hesitation, there is caution. And it is only as God sends an angel with a hot coal, metaphorically speaking, from the altar to touch Isaiah's tongue, that Isaiah may know and see that he has touched his tongue and your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for, Isaiah 6, verse 7. Now, what makes these items, hot coals, censers, incense, altars, tongs, what makes them holy? Aren't they just the instruments of worship made by the hands of men to be employed in the service to God? I mean, what's the difference, if any, between your charcoal grill and its hot coals and the steel shovel that you use to transport the coals to the fire pit afterwards? Or that little punk incense you burn to keep away the mosquitoes. Weren't all of these utensils employed by Nadab and Abihu, censers, coals, incense, manufactured by Israel's craftsmen? Well, of course they were. Exodus 37 says they made the altar of incense out of acacia wood. It was square, a cubit long and a cubit wide, two cubits high. It had horns on the pieces with it. They overlaid it on the top on all sides of the horns with pure gold. They made a gold molding around it. They made two gold rings below the molding, two on opposite sides to hold the poles used to carry it. They made the poles of acacia wood, overlaid those with gold, they also made the sacred anointing oil and the pure fragrant incense, the work of perfumers, all of that from Exodus 37. In our text, they built the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood, three cubits high. It was square, five cubits long, five cubits wide. They made a horn at the four corners so that the horns of the altar were of one piece. And they overlaid the altar with bronze. They made all these utensils of bronze, its pots, its shovels, sprinkling bowls, meat forks, fire pans. They made a grating for the altar, a bronze network to be under the ledge, halfway up the altar. So that'd be a great Exodus 38, verses 1 and following. What's going on here? All these things had to be made. Okay, so what's so special about them? What makes them acceptable in worship? We get to chapter 40 of Exodus. After all the work was completed, we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the first month. Place the Ark of the Testimony, that's the Ark of the Covenant, in it. Shield the Ark with a curtain. Bring in the table, set out what belongs on it, then bring in the lampstand, set up its lamps, place the gold altar of incense in front of the Ark of the Testimony, put the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle, place the altar of burnt offering in front of the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, put the water in it, set up the courtyard around it, and put the curtains at the entrance to the courtyard, take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it, consecrate it and all of its furnishings, 
and it will be holy. Hmm. Then anoint the altar of burnt offerings and all its utensils. Consecrate the altar and it will be most holy. Anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate them. Bring Aaron and his sons into the entrance to the tent of meeting. Wash them with water. Dress Aaron in the sacred garments. Anoint him. Consecrate him so that he may serve me as priest. Bring his sons in. Dress them in tunics. Anoint them just as you anointed their father so that they may serve me as priests. Exodus 40, verse 1 and following. And then something stupendous and revolutionary occurred. We read, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of God, the Lord, filled the tabernacle. And Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Exodus 40, verse 34 and 35. Now, here's my question. What made the furnishings in the tabernacle holy and therefore off-limits to all except the priests acting in their official capacity. What made those things holy and off limits was the consecration of everything by the anointing oil confirmed and approved by God's glory that filled the tabernacle. From this point on, all those items were deemed holy because they had been consecrated to the Lord. No longer were these items to be viewed as the ordinary wares of silversmiths and carpenters. No. There was nothing ordinary about them from that point on. God's presence, his blessing, made those things holy. The first qualifier in worship and worshiping God is to treat God as the Holy One that He is. Second qualifier, also verse 3, in the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Honored. The Hebrew, the basic meaning of this word, means to weigh down or to make heavy. To consider to be weighty. In other words, worthy of honor, respect, and all that goes with it. It's the kind of reaction given to a dignitary, to people of distinction, the, the weighty of society, you see. The movers, the shakers who comprise what men call princes and kings and so forth. What we have in our society, in our present society, is much disrespect, especially among the young and the naive. 
The push for equality among men has resulted in people placing God on their own plane. That's imaging of God, in which God is revealed as no more worthy of honor than the most basic characters in society. That's why blasphemy is on their lips so much of the time. They don't know of whom they speak. Better to keep their mouth shut than to blaspheme like they do. This can happen in the religious community. Jesus was accused by the Pharisees of performing miracles by the power of the devil, of all things. And Jesus had to protest. I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus. But I honor my father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he's the judge. And they retorted, well, who do you think you are? And Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you call your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. And if I said I did not, I would be a liar just like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it, and he was glad. He was glad. John 8, verse 49 and following. You hate me. You can't see me for who I am, but your father Abraham did. The writer of Hebrews, or the writer of Romans, same guy, wrote this to the citizens of Rome. As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles, the people of the world, because of you. Romans 2, 23 and 24. Are we giving a right message to the world about our God? What we profess, brethren, we had better live because the sin of Aaron's sons was a breach of God's requirement to treat the things of God as holy in the sight of all the people. I'm reading scripture. In the sight of all the people in public worship to honor God. Daniel's indictment of Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son, hits a little too close to comb for comfort. He said, you have set up yourself against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you. And you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the God of silver. You praised the God of gold and the God of bronze and iron and wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. You see what happened? Their worship went to things of their own creation. He goes on, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hands your life. 
and all your ways. Daniel 5, verse 23. See how people can get sidetracked? They can get lost in the accoutrements of worship. Candles. Hymns. Music. And miss the main point. Profanity. And the dishonor of God. Those are the two terrible sins. Of Nadab and Abihu. They profaned. They commonized what was holy. And their priestly office could not save them. May I say that your position is no better as a believer if we do the same wickedness. God put it this way. Just as he who called you is holy, so you be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. We serve a holy God. It doesn't mean we dress in black and walk around with a prayer shawl. But it does mean when we talk about God, when we represent God, we represent the King of Heaven, the Creator of the universe, God and Savior of our souls. And we don't treat Him as one of the boys. He's not one of the boys. He's above us. He will always be above us. He deserves our obeisance to him and our worship of him to bow down and praise the Lord. The very fact that he would let us worship him, invite us to come and worship him with gladness of heart, that in itself is a great, great blessing. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your wonderful redemption in making a way for us sinners, us wicked sinners, to come before your presence with gladness and joy. How do we come before you? It's through the blood of Christ. You paved the way. You paid the way for us to enter into the most holy place. Now, we don't come with the blood of bulls and goats and any other kind of animals. We come bearing... The truth that the blood of Jesus himself, the Lamb of God himself, is our propitiation. The very thing that makes a way for us to worship you in peace and in safety. We pray yet for our unsaved loved ones who, I am sure, do not have a perception of the holiness of God. That's the problem with the world when it comes to God. They just think God, if they believe in God at all, is just like them. He's just some kind of supernatural human being. Nothing about his holiness, his perfection, those things which the scripture describe. They're getting their definition from their own thinking, from false teachers, 
They're not in the book. They're not in the Bible. They're not in church. They're not in a gospel preaching church. And so they go astray. Lord, we thank you for your word. It keeps us on track. And where we have failed you by being perhaps too flippant, too irreverent at times, forgive us. And remind us that we're dealing with the creator of the universe and the savior of sinners who shed his blood, had to shed his blood in order to reconcile us to God. That tells us how bad off we were apart from God's grace. Bless these truths to our heart, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity, number 386. That's the red hymnal, 386. Shall we stand as we sing? The Red Trinity Hymnal, number 386. Sheep's 
Wonderful way to end a service. We pray God's blessing down upon us till we meet again. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for the truth of your word. Thank you even for those portions in scripture which warn us. And this certainly was a text today to warn us that when we see the sin of Nadab and Abihu, you will be approached in a holy way or we will suffer the consequences. I pray that none of us here would ever experience that kind of rejection from you and that kind of judgment from you. And when we come to worship, we come before a holy God. Help us to sense what it means to be serving a holy God. How that should affect our own lives and change the way we talk to one another, the way we think about life, the places we go, the things that we do. We're dealing with the holy God. And I pray that our testimony to the watching world would be such that they would say, boy, that person has something that I need in my life. They have a peace and a comfort and an understanding of life that is unique and necessary. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to live that before the watching world for the glory of God and the outreach of the gospel, the salvation of our own families, the praise of your holy name. Be the Savior that you are in Christ's name. Amen. We are dismissed.